Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, episode 21, Growing a Private Equity Real Estate Firm. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today, our guest, Brian C. Adams, who's the founder and president of Excelsior Capital, shares his story of how he grew his private equity firm to two and a half million square feet of commercial office space and secondary markets. Here it is. Today we have Brian Adams from Excelsior Capital. Uh, super excited to have you on, Brian. Would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and uh, what you do with Excelsior? Yeah, happy to. So um, I'm a New Yorker who married uh, a native Nashvilleian. So went to college up in the Northeast, went to law school in Boston, moved to Nashville roughly 15 years ago. I'm a recovering attorney, so I started my professional career actually as a prosecutor, trying vehicular, uh, anything from DUIs, vehicular manslaughters um, here in Nashville, Davidson County. My wife's family has a single family office that's invested in commercial real estate, private equity for a while. So I kind of fell into the business through the family's investments um, and relationships with other GPs and sponsors and that kind of thing connected with a, a friend of mine from New York who became my business partner. We started our company 10 years ago, initially started doing just urban infill things in Nashville, got super lucky with a rising tide and everything that was happening in town, started raising some friends and family money through a fund vehicle, um, started doing that through progressive fund vehicles, ended up growing pretty quickly. Um, we raised probably $75 million or so uh, of capital from individuals and, and families in the span of probably three to four years. Wow. Um, probably almost blew up my business because I didn't pay attention enough to the fact that not only are we doing real estate investments, but we're also starting a small business, which are related, but they're two separate things. And I did not spend enough time, energy or resources on reporting investor relations, um, tax audit, HR, all these things that have to do with creating a platform. And so got kicked in the teeth for about a year, um, trying to kind of rebuild that whole infrastructure, made a whole bunch of mistakes, tried to mm. fix them over the last two years with this new iteration of the company. And um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about kind of what I do on the commercial real estate side in terms of the, the product type or the investment thesis, but a lot of what I try to do is just go on speaking events like this and, and tell people what not to do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Avoid some of the pain and brain damage associated with the mistakes that I've made so that they don't step in the same pothole twice. Yeah. And that's an awesome story. Just for a point of reference for our listeners, um, would you mind telling them about where you're at now with Excelsior, what you guys specialize in and kind of what your assets under management look like so they have an idea of where you're at now? Yeah. So total AUM um, across my legacy portfolio, which I'm still involved in called Priam and Excelsior, we're probably at 360 million gross asset size. Um, and then that probably equates to two and a half million square feet across um, 30 some odd buildings in 12 markets in the Southeast and the Midwest. Okay. Um, and you guys specialize in what type of commercial real estate and what kind of like markets are you guys in specifically, if you don't mind? Sure. Majority of it is suburban office. And when I say secondary market, there's obviously a definition that we use. We, we target million plus MSAs. So, um, you know, cities with a million plus people and MSA can be 
a very uh, <laughs> squishy term, uh, like a broker terminology. But basically cities that um, like Nashville, Tampa, Raleigh, Kansas City, Richmond, Virginia, um, Louisville, Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, those are the type of markets that we're yeah. very active in today. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I mean, got a ton of questions for you. Starting out, like when you started getting more involved in real estate, how did you guys, how were you able to raise funds so quickly and grow your asset center management? I know you had a lot of learning lessons, but what was a part of your success to be able to grow so quickly in like three or four years? Sure. So one thing I just want to be very honest and straightforward about is most of it was just the immense privilege that comes with being a white guy who married into the right family that went to the right schools. I mean, just to be brutally honest, I was able to get meetings with a lot of people that I probably otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And I just have an affinity network of accredited investors or people that are just in my social world because that's the world that I married into. And, and so much easier than what a lot of people have facing them for sure. The second thing I did was initially, and this is really where I, I started to learn about how to officially raise capital. When you get into the business, I think a lot of people, myself included, you have this concept and idea of this beautiful creation that you have in your mind and the market's gonna react really well to it. And so I had these cool ideas and these cool deals. The problem is if it's pretty and you like to look at it, but it's not scalable and repeatable, it's art and not a business and art is great, but you can't sell art like you can a business. So what I did was instead of just telling people what I was doing and kind of shoving it in their face, I reverse engineered it and actually spent time listening to people who are in my network. And when I say that, I mean, people who conceivably would actually invest with me, right? Not spending time with people that are not a realistic investor. So I sat down with all of them and I just asked them, hey, what's your you know, favorite part about investing in private deals? What's your least favorite part? What does that experience look like? If you could paint me a picture and show me the investor story from soup to nuts, tell me everything that you, that you would want. And I started just delivering them that product. I started delivering them that return profile and giving them that experience that they expected. And once I did that, the deals weren't maybe as interesting, but the business was able to scale much more efficiently. That's really fascinating. And that's smart to focus on like the investor story uh, instead of the individual deal. Cause I mean, most accredited investors see hundreds of deals come across their desk. Um, what they're really looking for is something that checks all the boxes. Yeah. What, what were, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you like, what did that investor story look like? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that was different than just, you know, the IRR and the return profile. Like what are some of those findings you learned? Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's the right question. And I think, what I've learned and I continue to learn is that effective sales comes from empathy mm -hmm. and not from ego. And, and I, I see a lot of sponsors and cheapies out there with really big egos talking about how great they are, how wonderful their deals are. And when they pitch, it's mostly a story about them. And the reality is most people on the other side of the table don't really care where you went to undergrad or how you got into the business. They care about how you can solve their problems, right? So what I realized was my investor base, high net worth individuals, family offices, independent RIAs, they're solving for three things, capital preservation, just a place to put money that's not going to be impacted by what happens next month at the election, right? They want yield. They want 
monthly, quarterly coupons, they want that passive income and it needs to probably be somewhere that eight to 10% range, cash on cash annualized. And then they want all the tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership without having to take on the liability or the headache or the heartburn of doing the deals themselves. So those are the three things that we do. And I tell our team all the time, listen, we are a sales and marketing company that happens to have real estate as a product today. And, and I think that's the right way for us to structure our company and the narrative that we have with our investors because we're delivering a financial services experience to them and we're solving a pain point for them. It just happens to be through real estate today that we're doing that. But we don't lead with real estate because it's going to be very difficult for us to compete with the Blackstones of the world and some of these people that have armies of you know, Stanford MBAs that are super smart, super plugged in and very well capitalized. I just don't think that's realistic. But we can solve their problems if you understand them effectively. Yeah, that's really interesting. So like when you, I don't know if you, when you're raising capital, do you send over a deck or do you do a presentation in front of them typically? What does that look like now? Yeah, it's constantly evolving. Um, And one of the things that I took for granted initially was we could just do this, right? But at this point, we have 550 some odd, um, not individual investors, but call it investors in all of our um, investments total and a distribution list of probably 5,000 people. And so you can't just kind of shoot out an email, right? You need to have a plan, a cadence, um, and infrastructure there to handle that type of volume. And so today what we do is we have a one pager, we have a deck, we have a model. We typically do some kind of drone footage and then we will record the pitch that people can watch at their leisure or forward along to somebody if they want to look at it. And then we'll do some kind of webinars where we'll say, Hey, nine o'clock noon and five o'clock, you can come on. We'll give you the pitch. You can anonymously submit questions and we'll try to answer them the best that we can just because you, there's only so many hours in the day where you can do, you know, a 30 minute hour long yeah. phone call with all these folks. And you try to be efficient with their time too, right? They're going to make a decision on their own timeline and you want to give them everything that they could possibly need to make that choice because you don't want to waste their time either. Yeah, absolutely. Or- and you can't scale to do 500 of these 30 minute hour long conversations. Um, how long are you guys typically raising funds for an individual deal? Like, what does that time frame look like? Yeah. So uh, another just thing I want to emphasize is we don't do we don't raise funds any longer. We strictly raise deal by deal. So at Excelsior, we are a fundless sponsor. We syndicate capital deal by deal. The only thing that people are investing in is that single opportunity that we show them. Uh, so no cross collateralization on debt or equity with other opportunities. Um, Timeline, it's interesting. Um, I think COVID actually makes things a lot quicker, um, which which is counterintuitive, but people have more time on their hands and they're more focused, I think, Um, as opposed to, you know, last year, this time, people are traveling and running around and in and out of meetings, kind of hard to get their attention, but now you have them, right? (laughs) And so, they will make a choice, I think, pretty quickly. But typically, it's about um, you know a sixty-day process for us. We we work on a first-come, first-served basis, so very transparent, very heads-up. Most of these folks are people that we know, so they give us a verbal commitment. We kind of chalk them up, and then we move on. But I'd say thirty to forty-five days usually. So, related to that, when you're pitching the asset, where are you at? with the asset when you're pitching it? Are you, are you guys already in a LOI? Are you under contract? Where are you at? 
Yeah. So that's more art than science, right? It's, every deal is a little bit different. Oftentimes these are off-market opportunities that a broker is bringing us, but it's not widely distributed, right? When we start the fundraising process, we are typically under LOI, but it's a robust LOI. So we've already negotiated all the business terms and the economic terms and the, and the large legal terms. And then we're probably just initially redlining the PSA. So we're negotiating that purchase agreement. Um, and then we typically do a 30 day diligence, 30 day closing. So the whole wow. thing's, the whole thing's about a hundred days, right? From when you find the opportunity to when you close it. Hopefully. Yeah. I feel like, um, uh, although, you know, personally I don't get involved in many transactions as big as yours, that's still like a pretty, uh, quick, you know, offer to close. So I'm sure that helps you um, in that negotiation process. Yeah. I mean, we've always been oversubscribed on our opportunities, which is, you know, great. And we've never retraded on a deal that we've gone hard on and we've never dropped a deal that we've gone hard on. So I think from the seller community and the broker community, we're a little bit slow on the front end, but you know, once the deal is fully loaded, we always close in a timely manner. And then that's why you get off market books, right? Is you, you conduct business like a gentleman, you pay everyone their fees. Um, and that's how you get repeat business. It, it looks like most of your assets are fairly new. I mean, they're, 10 to 15 years old on average. Um, and I'm assuming that's by, that's by choice. That's what your target market is. Um, is there a target market is beyond the age of the asset? Are you looking for like where the lease up periods are, like where they're at in that, like a vacancy? Can you talk to you a little bit of that? Yeah. So that was definitely a mistake we made early on was we underestimated vintage risk some of these properties we bought initially were, you know, built in the eighties, great location. They looked good cosmetically, but they ended up having quite a bit of deferred maintenance or CapEx issues. And that just crushes your, your cash flow, right? Um, it's just brutal. And frankly, we would take down deals that had a lot of smaller tenants in them and they were under market in terms of rent. So we're able to really manage them efficiently and raise the rents and increase the um, kind of profile or the credit of the tenants, but the TILCs really aid into our cash flow as well. So those are two things that we've pivoted away from for the most mm -hmm. part. So we were more focused on, you know, have the big tickets. If it is an older building, does it have new HVAC, new roof, um, foundation? Elevators are a killer on these multi-tenant deals. That's about a hundred to two hundred grand a pop if they go and uh most landlords hate spending money on that because it's not it's not revenue recurring right so you're yeah just, nobody's gonna give you more money for any other yeah way. exactly so those are things that we focus on so yeah we'd like to be in the 2000s vintage nowadays um now every deal is a little bit different we're taking down an 80s vintage deal now but the seller put in a lot of work to redo all the major infrastructure that we worry about so we feel very good about it and then um your second question was about the locations. Uh, I think more like where, well, I'll change it. Maybe. Oh, the like, rent roll, the rent roll. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so we like to be 85% occupied day one with a pathway to 90% occupied. Most of our sub markets that we focus on are typically 90 to 92%, you know, for class a. So we're trying to kind of right size them to market. We're very nervous about any near term role, especially given COVID. I mean, we're just not taking down commodity suburban office space with a lease up play. 
I still believe in the future of office. I still believe in secondary markets in the suburbs and I could wear you guys out with talking about that. But I think, you know, just realistically, there's a lot of headwinds there, right? And even on our own portfolio, we've seen slow release renewals. Um, uh, new leases have been a little bit slower. It's coming back and it's super market dependent, um, yeah. de depending on location. Like Ohio versus Virginia is worlds apart. Kansas versus Florida, very different. Um, just in terms of how the assets are, are functioning today. But yeah, I mean, we like to see a weight average lease term of probably north of four to five years. Um, what we've been started doing is to make sure that we can try to normalize those cash flows and, and deliver a consistent distribution. It's not a bond, so I'm not always going to give you 10%, but I want to be within two or three percentage points annually, hopefully. So what we do is, as opposed to what the lender takes, we as asset managers take an annual cash sweep. 25 cents a square foot or whatever the number is. And we use that as our TILC reserve, but it takes a couple of years to build up enough so we don't have to take cash flow out of distributions to pay for that renewal or rollover when it occurs in year five or six, if that makes sense. Yeah. So kind of staying there, um, you're looking for an asset that's 85 to 90% occupied. What do you like to see as far as the tenant mix in that? Is it like, at what portion of the building or whatnot? I, I think you know where I'm going. Yeah, so it's really interesting, right? And this is the academic debate that we have internally a lot. It's, you know, would you rather have a single tenant, 100% occupied building with just killer credit or multi-tenant and regional local credit, call it five users in a 200,000 square foot building. And, you know, pre-COVID, I think there was a lot of, legitimacy and taking that one user down. But I think we've all learned that underwriting credit risk is harder than any of us think when you've got black swan events like COVID where if Delta was your user, I mean, their debt was trading at par in February. And now you have real issues about their viability as a business moving forward. Um, so we like to see two or three tenants that have the majority of the lease role. And the reason we have gotten comfortable there is the analysis we do on a submarket basis is so tight that typically the rents in these markets don't justify speculative development. And you'll know if your 20,000 square foot user is rolling in two or three years, you can run a comp set and your leasing broker will be able to say, hey, there's just no building availability or here's the things you need to worry about. This building might be an option. That building might be an option and you can really get out in front of it. Um, and so we've become more comfortable with concentration risk, um, especially given that we're, we're, you know, judicious with, with the cash reserves that we take. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but we take down deals that have, you know, 60 to 65% single user. And then with some smaller ones, um, we've gotten much more comfortable there. Yeah, you definitely answered my question, but in your answer, did you say that you're you're looking at when they're going to uh, lease up, when they're going to release, or when their lease expires, and you're actually looking at what the competition is? Is that what you were mentioning? Yeah. So if if you're class A, if your class A comp set for you know South Johnson County, Kansas City is a million square feet, um, you know you'd be able to see that I've got a user rolling in five years. What does availability in the marketplace look like in five years on my comp set basis? And if, you know, if you've got one or two buildings um, 
and, you know, Sachsen County is a big old place in Kansas, you'll know whether or not that user's actually going to look at those buildings mm -hmm. just based on interstate access, amenities, build outs, who the landlord is, right? We all know those landlords that grind their properties or just put the money back into them. And so that's what gets us much more comfortable is that we like to go to some markets that are landlord's market and not a tenant market. Yeah. And that makes places like Nashville very difficult for us to invest right now because rent rates are such that you can just throw up a couple hundred thousand square feet of, of spec development and you can justify it. But for us, the markets we go to, class A rents are typically 20 to $25 modified gross. In order to justify new construction, you probably need to be north of 35, maybe yeah. high 30s a square foot. There's just a big gap there that, you know, we feel pretty well protected as a landlord. That's, that's cool that you mentioned that, because actually I wanted to speak to that. Because um, we're in probably a similar market in Charlotte, like as the Nashville, where just what you said, like if you're going to do a spec new build, you're going to want to be in that 40 plus uh, square foot market. And it's like, it just, it seems scary to me to, to, to get into that, that chance, if you will, uh, of that happening. So Yeah, and, and I think there's going to be a real flight to quality with COVID. And so I think you'll see users that, that do have the opportunity from a shareholder perspective or from a fiduciary expect, perspective, I think they will go to the newest, shiniest box on the street. Um, and that's why you're seeing a lot of development still occurring, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, we look at things on a per square foot basis as well, right? So we're typically buying at $150 a square foot per pound as our basis to justify new construction or to, you know, to the cost of new construction just for surface parking lot, not if you, not even if you did kind of structure, you're still looking at $300 a square foot, $350 a square foot of cost. And so, you know, that's why there hasn't been a lot of new development in these markets for the last 10, 20 years. Have you guys looked at, like, obviously the higher tier markets like Boston, Austin, I mean, maybe even Nashville, like there's a lot of new supply coming directly in that market. Have you looked at the tertiary markets around there? Um, and what are your th what's your outlook on those? Yeah, so I'm actually a big believer in this. I think what you'll see, and we're playing reading tea leaves here, but I, I think what you'll see is a lot of users go into a hub and spoke model where, you know, instead of having 200,000 square feet in San Francisco, they'll have, you know, four 50,000 square feet spaces in different markets. And that's where these tertiary suburban what we call nodes or like pocket neighborhoods make a ton of sense, I think. And so we're actually looking at a deal right now in, in Fort Worth, which is just a great story, right? I mean, Dallas has a lot going on. There's a ton of construction, but if you go 30, 45 minutes, we all know as the real estate people who are listening to this, that's a huge differential in terms of, you know, just access and your user base and your employee base. And so it's really its own market in and of itself. And so I do think, you'll see a lot of folks relocating to kind of a hub and spoke model where they have multiple locations outside of a major metro. Um, and we're seeing that play out in Nashville right now as well, um, especially if the, the CBDs are going to continue to struggle, which I think they will. You're eliminating that need for mass transit. You know, you're allowing people to be more flexible with their work hours. And frankly, commercial real estate across any food group, not just office, you go where the people go, right? You go where the people are located, you go where the jobs are. 
And so I think if your employee base is relocating to secondary markets and moving to the suburbs, that's where you'll, that's where you'll see office users move as well. In looking at the hub and spoke model of a larger MSA and looking at like the, what I would call like tertiary neighborhoods, um, are you guys opportunistic in it and that you're willing to bet on a growing sub market? Are you looking for, I want the market to be at 90% occupancy day one of us buying? Yeah, so typically we're going to mature sub-markets. And when I say mature, I want to see data from 2008, you know, the Great Recession, to see how it reacted. And if it was more than a 10 or 15% um, vacancy rate and landlords really struggled, that's a warning sign for us. Um, and I, I think that's allowed us to navigate the early innings of COVID effectively is because we're in pretty tight, well-known sub-markets that there's not even the option of building new construction because it's all, it's all like not in my backyard. People live there yep. and there's no developable space. Where, what is worrisome to me about some of these pop-up submarkets or tertiary submarkets, oftentimes they're in markets that have no geophysical boundaries. So there's no value proposition for building a building here versus five miles away, right? Because there's, there's, no, there's no barrier there. And so I do worry a little bit about some places in Florida or Texas where you see these huge household numbers, right? People moving their single family homes, building there, and you see commercial users going or developers, but you kind of wonder, well, if the land is just a little bit cheaper five miles away, what difference does it make? And, and so we're a little bit more cautious there. Can you talk about... Um... Going back to the fundraising side, you mentioned that you no longer cross-collateralize raising a fund. I'm sure there's a reason for that. Would you mind explaining what lessons you learned and why you, why you guys now raise funds only deal by deal? Yeah. So I think it goes back to being realistic with your potential investor base and what their comfort level is and what their sophistication level is. And I don't mean how smart they are. I mean how well they know private equity because they're two very different things, right? Institutional investors, they just don't have the ability to co-invest deal by deal. The, the machines are too big. The dollar figures are too big. It's very difficult for them to do it. So a fund is a good vehicle for them. They get diversity, track record. They probably get co-investing opportunities through their fund position to make them pull the trigger quicker. For individuals and families, I think a fund is a really imperfect vehicle because Individuals and families, even though they have AUM and they're affluent, they're just as crazy as the rest of us, right? And so it's very schizophrenic about when they're risk on, when they're risk off, when they want to put some money to work, when they don't, and trying to have them into an investment vehicle that has a three-year capital call window, a three-year deployment window, and then a three-year harvest window, you know, this isn't a rocket launch. Like everything's really got to line up well for that investor's journey to match up with the yeah. fund's life cycle. So that's where I think deal by deal just makes a lot more sense for my logical investor base and the things that my people want. They want, you know, not instantaneous, but like as close as possible, instantaneous cash flow. They want to be able to have a rifle shot of exactly the risk they want to take on and not. And, you know, hey, the last kid just graduated from college. I've got some cash in my hands. I want to put it to work. Or, you know, the market's up really nicely now. I want to put somebody to work in the next 30 days. It solves a lot of problems for them where a fund is just, I think a difficult product type and difficult investor experience yeah. vehicle for them. And so I talked to a lot of sponsors and GPs that they think the fund's going to solve other problems because they get this committed capital. 
um, and discretionary capital, which is a wonderful thing to have, but it's also very difficult to pitch a blind pool commingled fund products because you're going to spend a lot of time working on the mechanics and the fund and the fees involved with the fund and not as much time on the deals and the opportunities mm-hmm. and the management team. And I think a pitch like that, it's going the wrong direction if that's how you're spending your time talking. Got it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's always some downtime where you don't even have where you're going to deploy everything, right? So it's like, I'm in a rush to get money raised. And then it's like, okay, now I got the money raised. But what am I going to, how am I yeah. And I totally agree. I think the incentives are also a little bit misaligned, right? Because oftentimes you don't get paid a management fee until that capital is deployed. You're going to be very, I mean, imagine if you're the GP of a fund and you have one asset left in the fund to hit your carry on an entire portfolio of deals that you've done over the last 12 years. Are you really going to try to max out the value on that last Mm -hmm. asset? Are you going to get out the door to hit your carry? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, you're going to push it. I bought deals like that on the other end. You know, we track when some funds term life is over. Like, oh, this, is, this fund was raised in 2008. It's getting a little long in the tooth. This is the last two deals they have in the fund. Let's throw a flyer in there and see if they just want to get something done here. And you know, what GPs tell you versus what they tell their LPs is a different deal. Hmm. That's interesting. So like you guys obviously raise everything as equity. Um, what kind of split have you found to be good for all parties? Um, what kind of management fee if you're open to disclosing just to give our listeners a ballpark? Yeah. Um, so obviously every deal is a little bit different, but traditionally we charge a 1% asset management fee on equity annually. And then we take an 80, 20 split on the back end upon mm-hmm. a realization of that. So either a total cash out refi or a sale. Um, and that's an 8% pref. Okay. On the deal. Yeah. That's, that's very generous. Uh, it's a lot better than some other, uh, well-known social media <laughs> syndication funds. <laughs> and, and we have different, I mean, every deal, like obviously if it's a little bit more aggressive or there is more value add, or we are a strong believer in it, we'll take some of our economics off the table and, and return a lot more carry and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's where I also think to, to Kevin's question or point, Deal by deal also allows me to be flexible and nimble. Like right now we're looking at a, an early childhood care center building, which if I was in a fund and I had a very strict mandate, I wouldn't be able to look at that deal. I think it's super compelling. I'm personally going to throw down on it. And I think my LPs will really find it attractive. But if I was a fund, I'd be constrained, right? So I'd be trying to think of ways that I'd be able to do this. Whereas deal by deal, every deal has to stand on its own. And it's a lot of work, obviously, to raise capital. Yeah. But it allows me to you know, continue to look for value for me and my investors, which I think is ultimately what you should be doing as a GP. Absolutely. For our listeners who have had a successful career in real estate and started raising funds from friends and family, um, and maybe on a, like a per deal basis matching up with a balance sheet partner, do you have any advice for them in starting to raise a fund from people outside of their direct network? So I just want to make sure I understand the question. You're talking about GPs that work with groups that are allocating capital to their deals. Correct. Like just starting to raise, starting to like syndicate um, rather than doing deals themselves or deals with like one partner at a time. Yeah. Um, so I've done that type of thing before um, probably three or four times with, middling success. Um, I think some really important things to take away are 
that majority equity partner is going to want, deservedly so, control rights, oversight rights, and veto rights on a lot of big ticket items. So you are going to be marrying this person for the long term. So you better really hope that they're good people, that they're not going to retrade you at the last minute on your fees, and that you have a shared culture and vision on what's going to work for the deal, right? I mean, you need to paper that thing very aggressively and very carefully in the front end, and you need to go about it like a lawyer would as a terrible pessimist. So you need to address death, disability, and divorce. Those are three big things, right? I mean, what happens if I get hit by a bus? What happens if I get COVID and I'm in the ICU? What happens if we no longer want to do business together and have everything papered appropriately? Because if the deal's great, everyone make money, you're never going to look at that operating agreement. You look at the operating agreement, things go sideways, right? So it can be a downer, but the, the analogy I use is it's kind of like a prenuptial agreement. If you're not mature enough to talk about a prenup with your spouse, you're probably not at a place where you should be getting married to that person. That's, yeah. that's, there's real conversation. The second thing is if you're going to bring in your own LPs and your own friends and family in that deal, they need to really understand where they stand in terms of they are a second-class citizen compared to that big JV partner you're bringing in. And they've got to be totally comfortable with it because they're, when, when the deal goes sideways or you don't make a distribution one quarter, they're not going to call them. They're going to call you. And if you pick up the phone, you say, yeah, but this group out of New York says we can't make a distro. They're not going to like that answer. Yeah, absolutely. So, Are you guys raising everything as like a single uh, class share? Or are you guys doing anything with like, I've seen some funds start to do a preferred equity class where they just hit a 10% pref. And then there's a secondary class that uh, gets more of the upside. Are you guys doing anything like that? We've tried to keep it really simple. Everyone's common. Everyone's pair pursue. Um, everyone has most favorable nation status. Um, we do have some legacy fund investors that still have the opportunity to co-invest at a reduced fee load. So we're just very transparent about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the majority of our folks, where it's open book and transparent and everyone's on yeah. equal footing, I found that um, that's, it's harder to raise that capital, right? Everyone wants to be pref equity, but... I think as a manager, it's very difficult when you're making choices on the asset level to treat everyone the same when you've got some folks that are preferred and some folks that are common. I mean, just look at the terminology. And this is kind of what I go back to all the time is you're the general partner. You are a limited partner. That means you're limited in pretty much every aspect of the the word and the meaning that you could apply to it. And so again, I'm not opposed to those types of structures or deals. I do think you have to be pretty sophisticated to understand where you stand as an LP versus common or pref, or if you can do mez or senior secured. Um, And the best thing you can do is just be super transparent and open book about everything on the front end and let people make those choices. But um, don't try to hide the ball by using a bunch of Wall Street terminology. Got it. Um, And then you mentioned earlier that one of the like three pillars that you found your LPs looking for are tax benefits. Are you guys, what are you guys doing on that end? Are you letting 1031 money roll in? Are you doing cost segregation studies? Like what does that look like? Yeah, all the above. A big mistake I made on the front end was obviously we had sophisticated CPAs doing our our tax and audit work, but we now have a, a controller internally who's a CPA with a public accounting background, some tax with some big four experience. 
And it just makes a world of difference in terms of how you think about engaging with your third parties when you have somebody internal who's also counseling you. And so we do bonus depreciation, cost segregation analysis, um, you know, recognizing the distributions as a return of capital as opposed to income. These are all mm -hmm. fairly straightforward things, but they really add up. And the goal for us is to be able to show people a loss in their K-1s for the first one, two, maybe three years, depending on the asset, while also giving them a double digit yield, just because a lot of what I talk about is for individuals and families, um, they can be super sophisticated. They can have a lot of zeros behind them, but they should be looking at things on a net of fees and a net of taxes return profile, not a gross profile. So when Agreed. Blackstone comes to you with this cool fund of fun and they have these gaudy gross IRRs, it doesn't matter to you because you're not CalPERS, you pay taxes. So you really need to take that into account. Mm. And the tax code, it is what it is. And we can get political if you want, but it, it, is, it is a series of incentives and disincentives. And the tax code that's structured today is incentivizing you to buy commercial real estate. Because you should leverage it as much as you possibly can because it's incredibly powerful to juice your returns. And you mentioned that um, you're doing cost seg. Does that impact? I mean, obviously, it impacts your life cycle of an individual asset. Uh, what does that hold term look like normally? Well, yeah, I mean, we're usually a, a ten-year hold is kind of what we tell people to be conservative. Obviously, every deal is going to be a little bit different. Um, most of the time, you're going to want to take that asset out when you have the greatest weighted average lease term, right? So, yep. most of the time, if we're buying deals with a five or a six-year vault, we're going to want to figure out what's going to happen with that rollover. And so the most effective time to take it out would be year seven or eight when you've got that kind of nice steady cash flow because you're probably going to sell to an affinity buyer that wants the same characteristics that you wanted six or seven years ago. So we try to be very conservative, tell people that this is illiquid, it's a long-term hold. And frankly, that's one of the things I like about real estate is there's no scoreboard every day. Yeah. Sometimes you, <laughs> it prevents you from making knee-jerk decisions that you could otherwise make in a liquid market that you probably regret down the line. Um, and in terms of the cost segregation analysis, I don't think it really impacts our hold period. Um, we try not to let taxes dictate investment decisions. And I think to your mm -hmm. question about 1031 or opportunity zones, that's the advice I usually give LPs is, you know, sometimes it's better just eat the tax and do a good deal um, than cram in a deal just because you think you're getting some kind of tax advantage that Congress one day could eliminate anyways. Um, yeah. 100% agree. Every time I do something stupid, it's because I was in a hurry to find the next asset. So. Yeah, I mean, that, that takes perspective. It's hard. What, uh, what kind of um, investors are you looking for as far as contribution size? And can you get into any of that? Yeah, sure. So um, we only work with uh, individuals and families and what I term multifamily offices or independent RIAs. So we don't have any institutional LPs in our deals. Um, we only work with people that we want to work with. And, and that's kind of the crowd that we've created the, the platform for. Um, the minimum is, you know, typically $50,000, depending on the opportunity. Um, you know, we've thought about lowering it. We thought about increasing it. And we kind of go back and forth. One of the things that we do is if you're a friends and family or a previous investor, you know, we waive a lot of the minimum requirements. Um, just we think it's the right thing to do. And frankly, one of the reasons we're considering going the other direction is there's so many good kind of 
property CRE tech companies now that can help you manage the volume in terms of the investors that we feel more comfortable with it. Um, but at the same time, from our perspective, from my perspective, if, if you can't look at that $100,000 investment, if you can't get comfortable with the fact that it might go to zero because this is a risk that you're taking, you're probably not the right investor for me. And this is probably not the right deal for you. Um, just because I've learned my lesson, you know, you can try to get some people to come participate that they're maybe not the right fit. I've tried to be much more proactive on screening the right people that make sense for our type of investments and our type of company. And yeah, thankfully we've been you know, fortunate enough to have plenty of folks that have appetites. So what kind of a, uh, what IMS system do you use? If you don't mind. Juniper square. Juniper. Okay. Have you tried any of the other ones or that one was the best fit for you guys? Yeah. So when I was going through my hero's journey and the second chapter was just getting crushed. Yeah. I talked to a lot of sponsors and GPs that I have a ton of respect for and asked them what their recommendations were. And so we, we, uh, evaluated IMS, which is now a real page, I think. Yep. Um, yeah, they got bought out this year, right? Yeah. Crowd street has one and then Juniper and Juniper was the most expensive, had the most bells and whistles, but they've never lost a client. And I've interacted with them a bunch and it just has been terrific. I can't say enough good things. And I know they're expensive, but they're, it's just a phenomenal platform. And when I've, when I have investors, you know, who are in their eighties, email me and say, like, this is the invest, the best investor portal I've ever seen. Wow. They're, they're serial, you know, um, yeah. private investor folks. Um, we get that pretty consistently. And I like the fact that they're very focused on being a software company that happens to do real estate because they're always looking to improve their offerings um, and improve the platform. And obviously the real estate matters, but I think some of them that were leading with real estate just got too bogged down in some of the details yep. and less in the interface because my investors, they probably do invest in a lot of real estate, but they are neurosurgeons or wall street people. Right. I mean, yeah. They're looking for ease um, and applicability to kind of their own investments. And it's been a great fit for us. So I'm a big fan. How have you been able to grow your uh, network and your base of investors to get like neurosurgeons from across the country? Like what have you done or what has your whole company done to be able to track those people? Yeah, it's been interesting with COVID because pre-COVID I was doing a hundred plus flights a year, you know, 30 hotel stays a year, typical road warrior, just try to get coffee with people, get warm introductions, lunch, conferences, whatever. With COVID, obviously not really on the table. And so we started just creating a ton of content mm. and we started doing things like this where we just kind of, I used to think I've got this secret sauce. Like I know what I'm doing. I don't want anyone else to know about it. And instead we just started giving everything away. We do, blog pieces, webinars, LinkedIn posts about cost segregation analysis, 1031, what the election has in store, uh, property and casualty insurance, private placement life insurance, things that don't really have anything to do with real estate. But I know that my peer group and investor network should know or need to know about some of these things. And once we started doing that, yeah. we, we started getting a lot more inbounds, warm introductions, referrals, just because we're top of mind, I think. And I'm not after all of their AUM, right? I mean, they're probably going to invest with me a handful of times. I'm not in the wealth management business. I'm not trying to take something from them necessarily. Yeah. So I just try to give them as much content and information as I can. And it's really proven to be very powerful. I, we did a webinar on SPACs a week or two ago 
we had 180 people attend and I was able to make a bunch of introductions to my investors that are interested in, in SPACs to these third party professionals that I think they know what they're doing because I did my homework on them and they came from my network. And I think that's just really cool to be able to do that for, for people that you work with that you like to work with is, Hey, you should learn about this or this is an opportunity, but this is a risk. We're going to do one on hotels. We don't have anything to do with hotels, but yeah, we have a large Southeastern Asian investment group that obviously is, is pretty heavy in the hospitality space. And I want to just be able to tell them, Hey, you need to make sure you're doing these things just to be a resource for them right. and to help. And I think once you have that mindset, that abundance mindset or whatever cliche you want to use, I really do think it makes a big difference. Yeah. I think it's really intelligent that you guys put out a lot more content than just real estate focused stuff. Cause a lot of people only put out real estate stuff and then they just stay in that one bubble and they're yeah. ne never able to grow. Outside and that's of where, that. yeah. And that's where, I'm not trying to step on toes, but what I see a lot is a lot of sponsors of GPs. Um, they're like cannibalizing each other's time. Yeah. Talking about how hard they're hustling and whatever. And that's cool. And it's great to compare notes. And I think it's good to laud people who work hard, but I think you should be spending more time on your prospective investor base and, and what problems they have and what pain points they have and how you might be able to solve them. I think you'll probably end up having much better investor relations that way than talking to other sponsors about how awesome you are. Um, I, 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 this is my opinion. Yeah. yeah no, speaking, I love of that, speaking of that education piece, like what are you finding that your uh, clients are, or when you're pitching something, what do you find like that your potential client or your current clients like grab onto as far the best, as the best engagement yeah. topics? Yeah. Anything that has to do with, Avoiding, not avoiding, mm. reducing your tax life. <laughs> my CP, my, you know, people would be yelling at me, but uh, yeah, reducing your tax liability through yeah. little options um, is definitely the, the number one topic that gets the most engagement across the board. Mm. Um, the, oftentimes what happens is just creating a venue for them to network. So like boutique investment banks that maybe if they're a privately held business are thinking about, Hey, if Biden wins and there's a blue wave, capital gains really gets taken up to 40%. Should I take some chips off the table in the next six months? That's a really personal decision, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. being able to plug them in with a trust and estate attorney, a really good local investment bank that you trust um, and a CPA firm that, you know, is going to be able to make a real valuation there. I think those type of things are what I always think about is what are the kitchen counter conversations I have with my wife about our lives? Mm. Because they're the same things other people are talking about. They just might not be willing to call you and tell you they're worried about it. But if you put on a webinar or a blog piece that addresses that, those fears and tries to just help them through that decision-making process, those are things that far and away get the most response. And, and sometimes it's just timing, right? I mean, SPACs are super topical right now. Yeah. And I think we just hit that window where you're reading about it, you're seeing them, you're maybe getting pitched SPAC deals. And oftentimes this, and I know I suffer from this too, like white males especially have a hard time acknowledging that they don't understand something. So just having a safe venue where it's like, well, let's just talk about what a SPAC is and what it isn't. And we'll go through it because maybe you think you know what it is, but you probably aren't vulnerable enough to ask somebody to explain it to you. So I'll do it for you. And those are the type of things and the type of mindset I have when I'm trying to create content and, and just to be a resource for people. Yeah, I think that's smart. I think like the interactive, like what you're doing to educate and whatnot are key because 
I was just thinking about this as we speak. Like I, I'm part of an angel fund here in Charlotte and we get together like once a month will now be a zoom, but you know, there's a thousand webinars you could jump on a month, but I never get on those, but I'm always trying to get on that angel fund because it's kind of interactive and you're learning and, and, and talking about the benefits of whatever investment it is. So I think it's a cool way that things are moving, you know, albeit because of the coronavirus. Well, awesome, Brian. We really appreciate you being on here. It's been fantastic. Where can our listeners um, find more about you and Excelsior and follow along on the journey and potentially reach out to you uh, yeah. if they're interested in investing? Th you know, thank you all for having me on. Um, and yeah, I'm super active on LinkedIn. So if you just you know connect with me and shoot me a note, I'm happy to set up a call and, and talk. You'll get you know your money's worth out of my free advice probably, but I'm happy to talk to you on anything you want to talk about. You know, I'm a huge hockey fan, so we can chat about the Predators um, or the Titans. Actually, are now like a legitimate football team all of a sudden. So we yeah, can chat about that. They look good. It's anything's possible in 2020, man. It's incredible. <laughs> um, so yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm happy to talk. And then obviously, you can sign up to the website excelsiorgp.com. We do have a newsletter that we send out, and the newsletter includes uh, the blog pieces and webinars that we were talking about. The recordings. You can go on the website and do our resources tab. We put all of our stuff on there. And I think one of the coolest things, and to your point, Kevin, about like engaging people and helping them, now with all, everything that, even post-COVID, but even more now, there's so much free stuff out there that's really good that you can learn a ton without having to spend any money on if you have the time. And that's one of the things that we try to do a lot of. So um, if you're interested in any of the topics we discussed, go to the resources tab and you can probably just check out you know, 20, 30 minutes and, and learn, educate yourself about what we're doing. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info, as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.